This is Looking Forward, conversations about the future of work, brought to you by Herman Miller. Hey, everyone. In this episode of the Looking Forward podcast, we talk with Stephanie Akawi-Hughes, founder of Aka Architects in Amsterdam. Stephanie challenges some of the traditional ways that architecture has been created and paints for us a picture of how organizations can approach the design of their spaces in a far more people-centered and participative manner to create spaces that are ready for the future of work. Enjoy this chat with Stephanie Akawi-Hughes. Hey, Stephanie, welcome to the Looking Forward podcast. Thanks for having me, Ryan. Tell us a little bit about you and what you do. Um, yeah, so I'm, uh, I'm an architect. I'm uh, originally from Lebanon, currently based in Amsterdam in the Netherlands. Um, as an architect, you know, you're, you're taught and you're expected to work with um, form, um, maybe function, and kind of it stops there. And my very early take on, on architecture and the way we did it was that form and function are great. Uh, except they're nothing without flow. So um, I take a quite a quite a human approach to it to look at how do we design spaces that support better flows in uh, the people using them and inhabiting them. Yeah. So uh, how would you help someone who's not familiar with looking at flow to know when that's being achieved or when it's not? You know, I think one of the one of the main things to look at is from the perspective of the design process, we need to really not look at um, spaces in plan as if we were a bird with an x-ray vision, uh, you know, opening a plan and looking at the walls and the dimensions and the functions per se. Um, so we, we really have to look at how do you design a space as if you were walking through it. And then I think from, from just a common sense perspective, which ironically enough is not common enough, um, you know, looking at how do you design spaces that actually support how you're going to use them as a human being, I think as architects, you know, when we are being architects and designing, we forget that we are also human beings and that we also use spaces and there are also irritations that we face. And somehow we miss the opportunity of taking those learnings into the design. And, you know, we really look at how do we, how do we, you know, how do you design a space by thinking, okay, if I walked into the space after coming from such and such in such and such a, a mood or, or, you know, after having experienced something, what would I need? And in a workplace, it's, it's very important to look at how do people enter the workplace? What kind of mindset might they be in? And, you know, they're not an employee, they're a full person. So you really have to look also at when a person comes in, uh, how is the commute to the office? Is it stressful? Is it not? Uh, might people be coming in with personal issues? Well, of course they are. You know, and, and how, how does, what does it mean to arrive at work? What do different people need? Some people sometimes need some time to land before they stop talking to others. Sometimes some people need to kind of enter right into the vibe and the energy to kind of kickstart their day. And those are conversations that we rarely have in the conventional architecture world. You know, I studied in the American system, which is considered quite mainstream. Um, I used to work for a big company that is considered one of the best in the world. And in those two um, quite, you know, considered advanced and mainstream um, environments, uh, we never discussed people. And we never discussed um, just, just how to humanly use a space. And I found that extremely um interesting let's just use that word interesting (laughs) so you know when after this experience i found myself actually really not 
not being the architect that I wanted to be when I decided to become an architect with all my innocence <laughs> as a teenager. And my original idea was really to look at this incredible opportunity to shape people's environment, to shape the context that we spend time in. And we are always in a context, right? And this opportunity, of course, comes with an amazing responsibility that is also quite humbling. So there is this mix of excitement and maybe even a little bit of fear that comes with how big this responsibility is. I mean, you can shape somebody's context and pretty much hinder their day or their days, and you really don't want to do that, you know? So that for me was very exciting. And then I did my studies and I started working in this big firm uh, right out of college, actually thinking if they say this is the best in the world, then this must be the best. So bring it on. And, you know, you get in and I learned a lot about what to do. And I learned a lot about what I didn't want to do as well. And from there came this vision that um, I now call architecting interaction. And architecting interaction is really looking at can architecture become, become a tool? Can it be the verb? Hence the architecting. And the tool is really a means to the end. And the end is interactions. Can we foster better interactions between people? Can we enrich the lives of daily, daily interactions of people through a better context? Yeah, I think this is more relevant now than ever. I mean, it always has been, but as people are coming off of a time of extreme isolation, in many cases, thinking about how our spaces bring us together and having that very human-centered approach is really refreshing. I've noticed for years that there's often a disconnect when Typical plan view, you know, top-down um, plans for a space are shown to business people who might not have a design background. It's very difficult uh, for them to try to understand the nature of the interactions that you're trying to support. I'm curious, what did you have to do to move from uh, being educated and thinking more about the space to understanding the human dynamics that were at work within them? You know, there were, there were, there were a number of um, incidents when I was working uh, for this company, um, because I, you know, I, I also learned a lot, and I got the chance to lead quite large projects with very uh, high-profile clients, and you know, it's a very humbling experience. And you know, there was a couple of incidents, such as, for example, once I was actually sitting with the end client, um, and this lady said, you know, we were caught up in defending our design. And this idea of almost playing God and telling the client what they need as opposed to listening to what the client needs uh, is, is a blinding approach, right? And, and I, was, I was, you know, um, guilty of it as well, caught in that world that we are such important architects and, you know, we are a famous name and all of this. And you go to the client and you're arguing instead of listening. And she looked at me at some point and said, you know, Stephanie, this is, we are going to live in this building, not you guys. And that was the best slap in the face I could have ever received because it was really, you know, a really good wake up call because she was absolutely right. And it was a client of a different culture to the office I was working in. And there was a big gap and not listening was creating serious problems. And that for me was one of the moments where I thought, actually, we need to start doing this industry differently. Like I cannot be in another meeting and have that same conversation because I suddenly really agree with what she's saying. And you think, yeah, it's, it was like a, definitely a wake-up call. Another incident was um, we submitted uh, drawings for, uh, you know, we were at, like going into construction had started. And then somehow 
somebody noticed that the front door of this public building was barely two meters high. I mean, that's not okay. And I mean, we're ba- we're based in Holland, right? We are, mm-hmm. We know people are expected to be tall. And for me, that of course, you can say, look, it's a mistake and it happens. And that's why we have these reviews built into the process and that's okay. But actually that was an ironic mistake where we actually forgot that the human being needs to enter this building. And for me, you know, it's, it's it was just another one of these moments of a wake up. So, yeah, I think, you know, we, we had those, those experience and, I think I was maybe naturally also more inclined in my character to uh, listen. So I was also already a bit more sensitive to when I wasn't doing it. Something just didn't feel right in how we were um, practicing. We used to call it architecture among ourselves. I mean, that's funny, but it's just really sad. Like, you know, if your profession has the word torture in it, really? Uh, that's not good. <laughs> yeah. So this ultimately led you to create your own firm in the Netherlands. And I, I sense that you approach things differently now than maybe what's been done in the past. Tell us a little bit about your, your organization. Yeah, for sure. I think, you know, I, I set up the organization um, driven by a vision. You know, I didn't necessarily just want uh, to set up an organization for the for the sake of an organization. Um, and that also means that I actually uh, left, uh, I resigned from my, my previous job and I spent a couple months really thinking about what what is it that I want to do differently. Um, you know, I, I always say I had my midlife crisis quite early on. I thought I'll get it out of the way. Uh, in my 20s. And I had this this questioning of, look how many architects there are in the world and why should I be yet another one going through this process, uh, fighting with the clients as opposed to really elevating anything. You know, it was, it was the whole process I looked at as a compromise process and I don't like compromises, you know? I, I just, I, I don't know why we should accept them so for me, we, we started from a vision. The client started from a high hope of what they wanted. And the whole thing ends up with um, compromise after compromise to something that is just there as a result. Um, but that thing is a thing that's going to be there for years. So you really don't want to have that as a compromise. So that was one of the first kind of things that I thought, okay, how can we do this differently? How can we enter in a process of design where we add onto each other as different uh, parties and we actually elevate the process instead of kind of take it down by by compromising. So um, you know this idea of a participatory process uh, came in quite early on. Um, the initial idea was really looking at what's the point of architecture. If it's not to give us a better environment to run our lives, our work, our whatever we do, then what's the point? So the idea of interaction was there early, and then of course, well, how do you do that? You know, a vision is great, but if you can't implement it, it's also a bit useless. So I had an obsession for a while about what are the, what is the process that will actually lead to spaces that can really foster interactions, um, the way I wanted, I wanted them to. I was also a bit obsessed with, I think it was Einstein saying, um, if you try the same thing and expect different results, it's a bit, it's definition of insanity or something. And I thought, let's not be crazy just yet. And let's really think about what is it that I'm going to do differently. And I think without meaning to, that also turned out to be a very unusual start of an architecture company because I started with no prospect for a client, no prospect for a project, you know, totally jumping in the void, um, which of course also gave me the time to develop the vision. 
And I really wanted to have that up on its feet um, before we actually went any further. You know, I wanted to have at least a skeleton of what would we do and how would it work. And then really look at projects to test and learn that approach and, and test and learn and enrich. And, and, you know, we're now about a decade later and the essence of the vision is, is actually still the same. And the essence of the process, the principles of the different stages of the process are the same. Of course, we've learned and in, enriched it and improved it over the years. And it's also different in different projects. Um, but the essence is, is surprisingly and, and quite nicely actually still the same. Awesome. Well, with that context in mind, I do want to eventually ask you about what may be different in this new world of work. But first, I want to touch on your location and specifically the reputation of Amsterdam, along with Sydney and maybe a few other cities as being very progressive places as far as workplace strategy and workplace design, knowing that a lot of our listeners might not come from the world of architecture, design, or workplace. Tell us, is that reputation earned? And if so, what's what was going on in Amsterdam, you know, pre-pandemic around workplace design that maybe made it a bit unique from what others around the world might know? Um, I think, you know, in, 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 my, uh, in my view, it's a very interesting um, location to be in the field of design specifically, right? So, um, you know, Paris or London and New York might be known, Milan might be known for Fashion Week. If you think of Amsterdam, it's really more the design approach that is uh, the focus, right? So, and there is a certain uh, freedom here that comes with, we're free to try and test and iterate and learn and try again. Um, you know, there is a freedom that comes that is built into around making uh, mistakes or trial and errors or really an iterative process, um, which is extremely useful. Because what I think is um, maybe unique or about Amsterdam or a short list of places is this, this experimentation that we see. And as with any experiments, you know, some, some are bad, some are good, some are just, you know, nothing special. Um, but it's that process of trying and trying and trying that liberates you from, oh, what if we try this and it doesn't work? That's rarely a question. Um, and I think that's really that's really beautiful in in the process, and that of course clashes quite a bit with the world of architecture, where you are, you know, this is, I think, you know, one of the fields that the Holland or the Netherlands are very strong with are graphic design and typography and things like that. And you can imagine that it's a it's a lot more fluid maybe in that field because you're not building any physical structure. And you, you think of iterative processes in architecture where you're supposed to build something that actually holds and doesn't move and doesn't change easily. You know, then you're looking into, okay, well, how do we bring this iterative approach in the architectural process? And that was one of the, the main questions as well that I thought, okay, as an outsider, I'm not Dutch myself. You know, I came here um, a number of years ago and I had this uh, advantage of looking at things fresh. And I'm looking at this going, this is actually very special, this idea of we can just experiment and learn and then do it again um, is quite precious. And I wanted to take that into the architectural process as well. So in our process at ACA, we have built, um, you know, we've built the process entirely differently, but we've also added a whole kind of last phase of the process that we call the adapting phase, where coming up to that phase, we try and 
safety and structure apart, of course, uh, we try and see what can we not have fixed. What, you know, not everything needs to be fixed or finalized. So where can we create this room for actually learning from the behavior, learning from the use, and then incorporating that into the design? And then how do you adapt? You know, we work a lot with um, companies and workplaces and companies are live ecosystems, right? They grow, they shrink, more people come, different people come and they merge, you know, things change. And the space is designed never to change. And that is a recipe for disaster. You know, that is where if you if your space doesn't support your change, then you're going to wake up one day and look at the space and go, you don't suit me at all anymore. So this adapting phase was very interesting to kind of really keep the space close to the cycles of changes that the company or the community are going through and really keep it relevant. Yeah, we have observed in recent years that there's far more prototyping and piloting of new workplace designs than maybe there was previously. And um, if I think a little bit about some of the conversations that we have with organizations moving forward, I think this idea of more post-occupancy evolution, more adaptation of the space has become really top of mind because the work patterns are so much less predictable. Uh, maybe they never were, but it, people are at least quite aware now that yeah. something has to bridge the clock speed between the building architecture and the work and workers that are within the building. Um, tell us a little bit about your thoughts on future of work, how you're working differently, what, um, if anything, you believe the pandemic and our experience in the last couple of years has done to the ways that workplace might evolve in the future? I think one of the main things that the pandemic has um, accelerated is really putting the, the spotlight on people. And, you know, what I mean by that is um, Everything that's happened with the pandemic and people working from home and health becoming very important suddenly, you know, as workplace professionals, and that includes architects and designers and facility managers and HR managers and, you know, maybe even real estate and IT people, all the people that support this workplace environment, right? Suddenly, we were all looking at this going, it's actually not about the office. It's about the people. It's about the people in the office, right? And it's about people's well-being and it really became i mean sadly enough a matter of uh, of life and death in a sense and you're looking at this going okay we need to broaden our horizon this is not about looking at the space from an aesthetic only point of view or from operating costs or from you know simply a, a square meters and and a business model case this is really looking at supporting people and that for me was, um, you know, that's that's something that we've always wanted to work with, but that's definitely, the pandemic has definitely accelerated that understanding um, by halting everything and saying, okay, people have to be safe and how do we do that? Um, and that means that, you know, when we're talking about coming back to work and finding this new way of working forward and in the future, we can't forget that suddenly, right? So the first, the first layer is a layer of safety and and almost a utilitarian layer of, okay, how do we allow people to work safely? It's a pretty straightforward question. Um, but then you also very quickly run into the question of perception and psychology of how do we allow people to work uh, eff effectively, safely, and for them to feel actually safe working. And then very quickly you go beyond square meters, functions, 
costs and things like that. And you look at, okay, look, if we want to continue working as a company, then there is something we need to look at here that starts and ends with the person and what they need. And everything else has to kind of come to the service of that uh, human being. That is not an employee per se only. You know, that person isn't just a person between nine and five, let's say. This is a full person that have their own um, life dynamics, their own maybe people that they have to take care of. And working from home has kind of also abolished all of these layers. Now we see people's uh, living rooms and bedrooms and kids on behind on screen. And, you know, it, it really humanizes uh, the world of work, I think, um, which is notwithstanding the, the tragic situation and circumstances that happen in actually quite a good thing uh, for the future of work. Knowing that there's a lot of organizations that have either a formal or informal sort of committee now thinking about flexible working, future workplace decisions, if you could play the role of counselor or coach to a group like that, that may be working with an architecture and design firm, what do you think each party could do differently than maybe was done in the past to try to put people more at the center and create more of that human-centered experience that you just described? Um, yeah, I think that's a, that's, a, that's a very interesting exercise to think about. Um, one of the first things I would say is we have to change the questions we ask. Right. So a committee like that, and I've worked with committees like this uh, recently and, you know, also before the pandemic, there were some clients that are uh, maybe the more illuminated ones that were already having those interdisciplinary committees to look at the at the workplace. Um, and now I think a couple of things need to happen. Um, such committees need to not look at the workplace but look at the people in the organization, which is kind of what I just described before, right? So there is something, it's a different starting point that will lead to different answers. The other thing I would say is we need to ask different questions. And maybe the most important thing is that we need to all, you know, all those different uh, perspectives around the table, let's say from facility managers to IT to HR to uh, real estate, they all need to ask the same question. Because at the moment, they're all asking their own question, right? They're all asking, um, you know, the HR person might be asking, okay, how do I uh, ensure uh, people are safe coming back to the workplace or feel good? Or, you know, how do we arrange the new contracts of hybrid working? How many days at home? How many days at the office? And the real estate person is thinking, hey, if not everybody's going to be here, I can cut some of those square meters and reduce cost. And the facility manager is thinking of something else. And the IT person is a poor person drowned into all of these requests. of you know, And you can see that everybody is coming to this table from their own uh, perspective and with their own, um, not incentives per se, but, but criteria, right? With their own goals that they have to kind of achieve from their own discipline. And I think that's, that's great, but that can't be the starting point. All of those different uh, perspectives and, and criteria need to be put at the service of one single question, which is how do we support the people in this organization? And then we need to answer it from all the different perspectives. The, the question needs to be you know, unified and the answers need to be diverse. And that is not happening yet. We have different questions and different answers and there is no kind of we're not converging to the same goal, I would say, in those committees. And then come the architect. And being an architect, I can be quite critical. I think that's allowed, right? So, <laughs> so I think, you know, 
I'm sure we're not all like that, I'd like to think, but I've been exposed to enough architects looking only at aesthetics um, to be quite critical. Um, you know, and at the risk of generalizing, I would say the more famous the architect, the more they design for a magazine. They design for photography. They design for awards. And I may be sounding harsh, but, you know, I've seen enough of it to back it up. And as I said, I'm sure there are some that are not like that. I'd like to think that we are not like that at ACA, but there is that tendency. And, you know, and, and the sad truth is that these buildings do get awards and it's architects giving awards to architects. It's the blind leading the blind. It always gives me that metaphor in my head. And it's a bit ridiculous, of course, because that's, we, we need to move beyond that. We need to move beyond that, um, you know, way of designing, which is aesthetics and, um, almost inhuman designs that are actually not livable and let alone enriching the lives, right? And whatever that's driven by, is it, you know, how we were educated? Is it feeding our egos? Is it whatever it is? That's not my interest at the moment. My interest is what do we move to? And I think looking again for us as architects at that same unifying question of how do we support people in this environment? Then suddenly it's not about the aesthetics only. Now, don't get me wrong, right? I think it was Bookminster Fuller who said, if, he, if I'm working on a problem, I never think of aesthetics. But if I'm done, when I'm done, if the solution is not beautiful, then I know it's wrong. Let's, let's, let's kind of ponder about, about that for a moment. So, and I, I really like to try and use the same approach in our architecture and design projects. We work without thinking of the aesthetics as a driving factor. But when we are done, the result needs to be beautiful. Otherwise, it's just not right. And, you know, beautiful can mean a lot of different things. But when you're done, if you look at it from the end and you look back on what you've created, it needs to be beautiful. It needs to be intuitive. It needs to be, you know, like it was always there. And for me, there is the process to get there needs to be somehow effortless. And there is a beauty in that to let the project emerge as opposed to force it from a vision I had in my mind, regardless of who am I designing for, where am I designing, what's the culture and all of that. So, and that for me comes from really asking this question of how do we support the people in this space? And of course, from that question, a million questions come, come out, right? Who are the people? What do they need? What are the current challenges, et cetera, et cetera. And then... The other thing that we can do better as architects is um, not only asking that question and starting from a different point of view, but also looking at this, this council around the table and actually genuinely trying to understand the different perspectives and being this you know, orchestra leader to draw on all of these different expertises from HR and from facility managers and from real estate and from IT and say, how do we bring all of this together? in the space that then can can emerge. And I think we don't do that enough. We we kind of, you know, look at imposing things as opposed to really understanding, extracting different insights, listening to the different expertises and kind of bringing it all together um, into a, a space. You know, the image I have in my mind is if every one of those disciplines or perspectives is one facet of a diamond, then the diamond kind of takes shape, right? 
And this is what I mean with a process that is not compromising, but actually enriching. We all add on to each other, add on, add on until it's elevated. You know, and there are upward spirals in my mind when I talk about this process. It's not a linear process and it's definitely not a downward process. It's spiraling upward and going around and around and getting all the expertises. And the most important expertise is actually people, which should be on that council. So maybe that's the first piece of advice I should talk about. You know, this council of HR and facility managers, etc., needs to have people on it as well. Employees, people, manager, whatever the role is, uh, because they have a huge expertise that we are not really tapping into enough yet. There are so many things that you just said that resonate <laughs> with me. And um, my mind is particularly fixated on your reframing of aesthetics, which is very refreshing. It also, by the way, really resonates with me as, as someone from Herman Miller, because we take a very similar approach where instead of starting with, here's the design language, here's what needs to go be designed, we're seeking this degree of resolution. Um, sometimes we call it inevitability around when the design is done, you should have a sense of it. And sometimes it can be maddeningly long when there's this sense of, no, it's not quite there yet, but once you get it, you know, um, which I really love. And I also really appreciate the perspective that you just took, because as we see more functions getting involved in these decisions, HR, IT, legal, et cetera, um, that focus on how to support people differently, you're right, not only helps focus on the user, but it helps each other to understand one another um, a little bit more. Uh, one of the things we're trying to do, I think, throughout this podcast is reframe from maybe more stereotypical topics. We had Dr. Andrea Shigou from MIT talking about buildings not just as an asset class. Mm -hmm. And Steve Todd, who's head of workplace at NASDAQ, looking at really participatory involvement like you just described. So everything you're saying um, is such a great way of elevating the role of architecture and design in a more strategic way into that conversation. And we want to see that too. So I just have one question in closing, which is tell us a little bit about you and how you work and how you imagine working differently in the future than maybe you worked in the past, knowing that you have this great focus on user-centered design. Have you applied it to your own work life and what might be different in the future for you? Yeah, I think, you know, it's, it's part of, it's part of, I think maybe my, my DNA and I don't really think about it that much in a sense. Um, we, you know, we have a, we have a team of uh, quite international people um, which is quite amazing. You know, we have more nationalities than people on the team, which is quite something. And I really like that specifically because of all these different perspectives and, and facets. Um, I also, you know, we, I keep the, the team. I mean, it, there may be a contradiction here, right? So let's, let's, let's unfold this. Um, I founded ACA myself uh, about a decade ago with this idea of architecting interaction and I have to say, I've been very protective of the vision. Um, so protective that um, I don't have a partner in kind of owning and running the company. Um, and that is really because I'm, I'm quite scared, <laughs> you know, if, if that partner is not the right person and doesn't resonate the same way about the vision or doesn't give it the same weight over other things, then you start this, this compromising process, which I can't stand. So, you know, it's, it's out of protection for the vision. And that's because it's not just a vision and it doesn't actually just go in our projects. 
It goes into how we run the company. It goes into who we hire and who we don't. It goes into how we sit in our space. It goes into, you know, what kind of um, agreements or, I mean, policies is too big a word for us. We don't have any policies, <laughs> but that may be the point. What kind of agreements do we have as a team as to how are we going to work? And um, it's it's really a constant um, consultation process. It's a constant consultation process. And there are moments where, you know, you have to make a decision um, and the different people with the different roles make the different decisions under their uh, their capacity. And I make uh, my sh- fair share of decisions as well. But in getting to the decision, there is a consultation process. I think what a lot of people maybe confuse is the process of consultation um, with the, the kind of sole decision at the end. I think there is a misunderstanding between, well, if you're going to consult and talk and get everybody's you know opinion, then you can't actually do that and then be a quote-unquote dictator with a final decision. And for me, I look at that and I say, okay, consultation is not co-design. That is both for the projects and for our own way of running our own internal you know, staff and company. And um, we don't want opinions, we want insights. And the insights should make the decision so clear that it's not a dictating decision. It's it's what the decision needs to be, right? So opinions are based on personal preferences and taste. Insights are based on from this experience that I've had as such and such a person with such and such a personality, here's my experience. And there is an insight in that that we can learn and adapt to others. And we use that in our in our projects as well. We engage people in our design process. And I always have to remind people because people want to jump to talk about design and they want to tell you, you know, what colors they want in the office and what they want the things to look like. And that's not what we want to know. We want to know how you experience working. What are your needs? What are the challenges? What is the culture? What are the values you're trying to live? And then we're going to design the space for you to support all of those. So your expertise is in your dynamics of work and our expertise is in how do we create a space that supports those so you see it's not a co-design this is not an equal process where we're asking people what kind of space or we're asking them to design which is also not fair for them right so and it's the, it's a similar process we have in the office to say look we i don't know everybody's perspectives myself and i need to understand these perspectives and these insights before i can make a decision if i'm the one to be to be making that decision so in a sense that's really uh, interesting and what covid has done is expanded the spectrum of needs of people right and now you know people have also demonstrated that they work well from home you know this idea for of a manager to not imagine not seeing his or her team because maybe they're not working or all of that has been proven false for the most part. So, you know, people have deserved more options and more choices. And what do you do at that in a design company? Well, we have people that are working from their homes, their homes being Spain, Italy, Greece, when we are actually based in Amsterdam. And we have people that couldn't wait to get back to the office. So, you know, we, we set up our office again and we have opened doors and, and you, 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 you learn to be a little bit more flexible and a little bit more open and really look at what what is the main, what is important here? What is important here is not to be able to see everybody at their desk at all times. What is important here is 
for people to actually enjoy their work, for people to also be effective with how they work, for people to bond and feel a sense of social connection and belonging so that they actually stay and, and, and enjoy their work and grow with it. Really, that's what's important. And it's just a very interesting, yeah, shift of thinking to let's not be so much into the details anymore of the physical, but really just understand what is the principle behind it. And to design for a principle, you can design it in many different ways, you know, and that's very different than being locked into, okay, we have to be all there at the same time in order to work. Because the idea behind that is good team bonding and efficient working and social connections and, you know, and those we can do in many different ways. And I think that that experience of working from home in the pandemic has just actually opened our uh, spectrum of choices. In an industry that is sometimes ruled by billable hours and project deadlines that focus on engagement and conversation and thinking about really being consultative uh, is probably more important now than ever as organizations think to do things differently with their spaces, but ultimately to support work differently. So very thankful for your perspective. I, I appreciate you joining Looking Forward Podcast, and I appreciate you being such a good friend to Herman Miller. Amazing relationship with Herman Miller we have, so that's, uh, that's great. Thank you for having me.